We are concluding our sermon series through Jonah this morning. We are in Jonah chapter 4. I'm going to be reading the entirety of the fourth chapter, which is only 11 verses. Before we uh, turn to God's holy and errant infallible word, let us uh, ask God to bless this reading and hearing of his word. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, your word is more precious than fine gold and sweeter than the purest honey. As we approach now your holy and errant infallible word, help us to prepare to receive this word which you breathed out by your Holy Spirit. Grant that our hearts and minds might not only be open before you, but also humble and teachable in order that the good news of your love would shine before our eyes and delight our senses so that we cannot help but to respond with wonder, faith, and trust. We pray this in the mighty name of Jesus. Amen. Jonah chapter 4, hear now the word of the Lord. It is written. But it displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he was angry. And he prayed to the Lord and said, O Lord, is not this what I said when I was yet in my country? That is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish, for I knew you are a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. Therefore now, O Lord, please take my life from me, for it is better for me to die than to live. And the Lord said, Do you do well to be angry? Jonah went out of the city and sat to the east of the city and made a booth for himself there. He sat under it in the shade till he should see what would become of the city. Now the Lord God appointed a plant and made it to come up over Jonah that it might be a shade over his head to save him from his discomfort. So Jonah was exceedingly glad because of the plant. But when dawn came up the next day, God appointed a worm that attacked the plant so that it withered. When the sun rose, God appointed a scorching east wind and the sun beat down on the head of Jonah so that he was faint. And he asked that he might die and said, it is better for me to die than to live. But God said to Jonah, do you do well to be angry for the plant? And he said, yes, I do well to be angry, angry enough to die. And the Lord said, you pity the plant for which you did not labor, nor did you make it grow, which came into being in a night and perished in a night. And should not I pity Nineveh, that great city in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from their left, and also much cattle. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of the Lord endures forever. Thanks be to God. Amen. When God asks questions in scripture we need to pay close attention like in Genesis 3 when God asks Adam where are you a chapter later God asks Cain where is Abel your brother 
Or in 1 Kings 19, when God speaks to Elijah, who is hiding in a cave after fleeing from Jezebel, the Lord asks him, what are you doing here, Elijah? We could find many more questions like these in the Old Testament, and this pattern carries over into the New Testament. Like in John chapter 1, when two of John the Baptist's disciples begin following Jesus after John declares him to be the Lamb of God. And when Jesus saw them following, he turned to them and said, what are you seeking? God asks questions, not because he has some sort of deficiency in his knowledge. God isn't asking the question because he doesn't know the answer. But these probing questions are asked to uncover something in the one who is being questioned. As one biblical commentator states, God's questions are meant to teach us something or to expose to us our inner selves when we are guilty of sin or disobedience. So whenever we read the Bible and come across God asking a question, we ought to ask ourselves, is God asking that question of me? And if so, what am I meant to learn from it? In Jonah 4, God asks Jonah some piercing questions. Uh, These questions reveal something about Jonah, and my guess is if we would take a moment to consider these questions, then they might just reveal something about us as well. And so in order to really consider these questions in Jonah chapter 4, I would like to, for us to examine two things this morning. The first is Jonah's bitter and resentful attitude toward God. And the second is God's patient pleading with Jonah. So first, we need to examine Jonah's bitter and resentful attitude toward God. Now, what we find in this final chapter of Jonah might seem like a strange ending to this book. Who would have thought that after chapter 3 concluded with the repentance of Nineveh and the relenting of God's judgment against them, that the very one who had come and proclaimed the word of God to them would be found angry and railing against God for his mercy? Chapter 4 begins, though, but it displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he was angry. God had blessed the preaching of Jonah by bringing the Ninevites to a mass mass repentance, and the result was not that Jonah was humble that God had used him. It, It was not that Jonah was grateful that God's word had been effective to save. It was not that Jonah was giving praise to God for his great mercy. These would have been the expected and appropriate response, but no, Jonah was furious. This would have been like Jonathan Edwards fuming about the revival that broke out after he preached his famous sermon, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. But this is exactly what we find in Jonah chapter 4. And we see something of why Jonah was angry in verses 2 and 3 in his prayer. Listen to his prayer. O Lord, is not this what 
I said when I was yet in my country, that is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish, for I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. Therefore, now, O Lord, please take my life from me, for it is better for me to die than to live. There are a lot of I's and me's and my's in this prayer, no fewer than nine of these first-person pronouns. It sort of sounds like a tantrum of a little child who has not gotten his way. And in a way, that is exactly what it is. Jonah was not pleased that this had not gone as he wanted it to go, especially in regard to the Ninevites. And the prayer reveals Jonah's attitude toward the Ninevites. There is a a sense here that Jonah didn't think that the Ninevites were worthy of the forgiveness that they were being offered. And and it might have been because Jonah saw the people of Nineveh as a, a very real threat to the safety and security of Israel. Or it might have been because Jonah was a narrow-minded nationalist who wrongly believed that God's blessings were the exclusive property of Israel. Or it could have been that Jonah just didn't think that the Ninevites were worthy simply because of how wicked they were. Regardless of the reason why, Jonah thought Nineveh didn't deserve God's mercy. And so Jonah despised that he had been used by God to proclaim God's word to Nineveh, and he especially hated that it had resulted in God relenting of his judgment against them. It was clear that Jonah wanted God's judgment to fall on them. He he wanted them to be destroyed by God's wrath. He stated that he would rather die than to see God be merciful to them. And at this point, God asked Jonah, his first penetrating question in verse 4. Do you do well to be angry? Jonah, is your anger serving a good purpose? Jonah, do you have a right to be angry? And if we would stop and really consider this question, then we would begin to realize what God was challenging Jonah to see here. Consider this. Jonah, by his own admission, is upset with God for acting in accordance with his very own character. Did you catch that? God, I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. For whatever reason, though, Jonah didn't want God to act in this way toward Nineveh. And it shouldn't be lost on us that Jonah had relied on God's mercy earlier for himself, but now he is bitter about the Ninevites receiving it. So Jonah apparently viewed the Ninevites differently than himself when it came to God's mercy. God's question is pushing in at this point. And maybe it is that there are sinners, and then there are sinners. You understand? Jonah perhaps saw himself as a basically good and religious person who who no doubt had some issues to work out. But the Ninevites, well, the Ninevites were wicked miscreants worthy only of destruction. 
So even as Jonah thought that God should forgive him of his sin, forgiving the Ninevites was going too far. And Jonah didn't appreciate God going soft on sin for them. I hope that we can plainly see how erroneous Jonah's thinking is here, but the truth is we might not look at things much differently. There are some people who we would be quick to agree deserve the wrath of God. I distinctly remember listening to a lecture in which the speaker was encouraging his audience to think about God's mercy being bigger than we could possibly imagine. It's, it's a good thing for us to consider just how scandalous God's grace truly is. But just to be provocative, the, speak, the speaker asked this question. Wouldn't it be wonderful... Wouldn't it be wonderful to find in God's eternal kingdom Adolf Hitler dancing with Anne Frank? And when he asked this question, someone on the front row immediately, very bluntly and loudly responded, no. The very thought of that might give rise to a feeling of disgust and anger. It offends our sense of justice. Someone like Adolf Hitler, someone like Osama bin Laden, people like the Hamas terrorists don't deserve mercy. They deserve God's justice and by extension, God's unmitigated wrath. There is no place for mercy for some, or so we think. But if we think that some sinners are in a different category than others, namely ourselves, then we fail to see ourselves as the sinners that we truly are. Scripture teaches us that the wages of sin is death and all have fallen short of God's glory, all. Some sin is not less serious than other sins. Some sin is not more easily forgiven than other sin. The wages of sin is death, all of it. Romans 6, 23 goes on to say, though the wages of sin is death, but, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Jesus has paid the debt of our sins. He bore our punishment in his death on the cross that we might be freed from sin and death, that we might experience God's mercy. And was there sin in which Jesus' death is not sufficient to cover? No. No. His death is sufficient to cover any and all sin of those who repent and place faith in him. And so what God was imploring Jonah to realize was that his grace mustn't be seen as an offense of our sense of justice, but rather the only hope of our own salvation. Rather than drawing back from God in frustration and anger, God's mercy shown to others should encourage us to flee to God for refuge as it reminds us of what God has done for us. Jonah, do you have a right to be angry? As Richard Phillips comments, at all times we will celebrate mercy and grace since by them we gained our own forgiveness. 
And we might agree with that statement, but how do we really feel about God's mercy for those who have wronged us? Do we resent God's grace when it's given to others? Do we think that their wickedness goes beyond what Jesus died to atone for? Do we wish ill of them? Or do we rejoice in every display of divine favor and mercy, remembering God's kindness shown to us? And we have our answer about how Jonah felt. He was blinded by his rage, and evidently he did believe that he did well to be angry. Verse 5 tells us that Jonah left and set up a booth outside the city where he would sit in the blazing hot sun to watch what would become of Nineveh. And Jonah's only hope was that repentance would be short-lived for them or that God would reconsider his position and complaints, but either way, that God's wrath would come in due time. How miserable is that? After witnessing such a miraculous repentance in Nineveh, Jonah was just watching and waiting for Nineveh's failure and demise. And think about that. Really think about that. Rather than rejoicing over the remarkable repentance that had come in Nineveh, rather than staying in the city to lovingly encourage the Ninevites in their newborn faith, rather than discipling them and teaching them to love God in his word, rather than working with them to come out of their former erroneous ways of thinking and behaving, Jonah removed himself from among those people to whom he had proclaimed God's word. Jonah just left them. He rejected them and and isolated himself, subjecting himself to miserable conditions, just sitting outside of the city and hoping that the city and everyone in it would be destroyed. This is very revealing and sad. Verse 6 and following tells us that God responded to Jonah's situation by appointing a plant to come up over Jonah to shade him, which Jonah gladly welcomed. Then at the dawn of the next day, God appointed a worm to attack the plant to kill it, coupled with a scorching wind and blazing heat. If Jonah was going to sit there and be hot in his anger, God would give him some weather to match it. Again, Jonah was so unhappy that he said to God that it would be better for him to die than to continue to live. And by verse 8, Jonah seems more bitter and angry than ever. So if we see anything up to this point in the passage, it's Jonah's hatred toward the Ninevites. He, He despises them. He shows utter disregard for them. He hates them so much that he would rather die than to see them prosper. And we shouldn't miss that Jonah's disdain for the Ninevites is the cause of his bitter resentment toward the Lord who has shown them mercy. You see, bitterness spoils the heart. The reality is that our hearts cannot be right with God unless they are right toward our fellow man. We can't hate our neighbor and love God as we ought. As one commentator keenly points out about this fourth chapter of Jonah, Notice what this heart sickness has done to Jonah's spiritual life. For a failure to love other people will always, will always poison our relationship with God. And this is where Jonah is in this fourth chapter. Hating the Ninevites, bitter bitter toward the Lord. 
And again, this might strike us as an extraordinarily perplexing ending to this book, which could have ended in verse 10 of chapter 3 with a, with a fairy tale ending. But as puzzling as this ending might seem to us, it is also strangely familiar. It perhaps draws our minds to another story that Jesus told, which is recorded for us in the 15th chapter of Luke's gospel. This story almost had a happy ending as well. If it weren't for an elder brother who was resentful for the mercy his father had shown to his younger brother. Most of us are familiar with this story that I'm referring to. It's known as the parable of the prodigal son. Although the piece about the elder brother is rarely the focus of the story. We like to focus on the characters, the other characters in the parable. We like to focus on the brother we call the prodigal who demanded his inheritance from his father only to, to wander far from home and squander it in reckless sin. Or we like to focus on the father who forgives his son and receives him when his son comes to his senses and returns home. A great celebration is thrown for the son who is lost and is now found, who is dead and is alive again. These two characters speak to us and cause us to consider the mercy and goodness of a loving father who is always ready to welcome home a beloved child regardless of how far that child has strayed. It beckons us, if we are the one who is lost in sinful living, to come and return to our God who reveals himself to be a loving father to us. But what we often miss or ignore in this parable is that it does not end with celebration, at least for some. Instead, the parable continues and concludes in somewhat of a strange manner. Jesus tells of the prodigal's older brother who hears the music of the celebration from the field where he is out working and he comes to see what's happening. And he learns from one of the servants that a great celebration has become, begun because his brother has returned home safely. But this brother is not so thrilled. As the parable goes, the brother was angry and refused to go in. So the father came out to implore him to come and to join the celebration. The elder brother retorted, though, look, these many years I have served you. I have never disobeyed your command, yet you never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours came, who has devoured your property with prostitutes, you killed the fattened calf for him. The parable ends with the father's response to his elder son. Son, you are always with me, and all that is mine is yours. It is fitting to celebrate and be glad, for this, your brother was dead and is alive. He is lost and is found. Jonah is like the elder brother in the parable of the prodigal son who hated his brother, who saw him as a despicable sinner and who resented his father for unjustly offering forgiveness. And just like the elder brother, Jonah refused to go in and participate in the celebration. Instead, he stands outside looking in, wishing ill on the whole situa situation. But despite Jonah's hatred of the Ninevites and his bitter and resentful spirit toward God, God did not abandon Jonah. In fact, much like the father in the parable who went out to meet his elder son, so does God go out to meet with Jonah in this fourth chapter? 
So we shouldn't spend all of our time focusing on Jonah's attitude and behavior here. It would be quite unfortunate if we miss the way in which God pursues Jonah, even in his hot-headed bitterness. So secondly, we need to observe how God is patiently pleading with Jonah. God doesn't just use Jonah for his purposes and then discard him. All of this served God's purposes. But it wasn't just to save the people of Nineveh. We need to see how God is sovereignly and graciously at work dealing with the heart of his prophet. And to what end? To root out Jonah's sin. To bring Jonah to an understanding of the greatness of God's salvation, to establish in Jonah a deep gratitude toward God for his rich mercies, to create in Jonah a love and humility toward others, in short, to sanctify Jonah. So God wasn't just messing with Jonah when he appointed that plant to grow up and bring Jonah shade. And hopefully we see a little of God's sense of humor in providing Jonah with this plant that as your Bible might denote in the footnotes was more than likely a castor oil plant. Uh, Jonah might have done well to use this plant for more than shade. But the phrase from verse 6 describing why God provided the plant, which is translated into the English in the ESV to save him from discomfort, or as it appears in other translations, to shade him from his distress, has a double meaning in the Hebrew. It can just as easily be translated as to deliver him from his wickedness or evil. And this double meaning seems to be very intentional. You see, God's purpose in providing the plant wasn't just to provide Jonah relief from the sun. It was also for the purpose of dealing with Jonah's sin. Jonah needed to be delivered from a hatred of others and a bitterness toward God. This plant provided a means. Jonah, who is at the start of chapter 4, was angry with a great anger, now rejoiced with a great joy. And one commentator notes that Jonah's mood is entirely transformed by the unexpected divine provision of shade. In his great love, God used this plant to begin turning Jonah's heart by softening. But God was also patiently pleading and prodding Jonah when God sent a worm to attack that very same plant. Killing that plant that Jonah had found comfort in might seem cruel initially to us, but it wasn't needlessly provoking Jonah. And nor was God trying to torture Jonah by causing a scorching east wind and the blazing sun to beat down on Jonah. There was a point to these things. They all served the purpose of being an object lesson in order that Jonah might be a little bit more reflective when God again patiently prodded him with questions. Jonah, do you do well to be angry for the plant? Yes, God, I do well to be angry, angry enough to die. And at that moment, Jonah was upset that God had saved the Ninevites but destroyed the plan. In his rage, Jonah couldn't understand the ways of God. But this is the point. Who are we to determine who is worthy to be saved and who isn't? Who are we to determine when God should be gracious and when God should pour out his wrath and destroy? Who can presume to know better than God? 
And I don't think that any of us would argue that we are wiser than God, that our thoughts are better than God's thoughts. But even so, we might be uncomfortable with the doctrines of grace as they are found in the scriptures. We might judge God's sovereign choice by showing mercy as unfair. We might think, well, that person's an old goat and deserves to have God's wrath poured out on him. But, but that person is, is kind and has, has lived a good life and deserves to be saved. It would be unfair if God saved the first and poured out his wrath on the second. Do we really want to argue with God about what is fair and not fair, though? When the reality is that no one deserves to be saved. If anyone is saved, it is only by God's sovereign grace and mercy. So as the Apostle Paul reminds us in Romans 9, God says, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy. It is all according to his sovereign choice and for his glory. But Jonah, being like the elder brother in the parable, might have really resented that he had always lived an outwardly obedient life and others had not. The Ninevites had lived wicked lives. They had felt free to break rules and chase after all that they lusted after in their hearts. And perhaps you can relate to Jonah in this way. Have you ever looked at those living outwardly and openly sinful lives and been envious in any way? Have you ever wondered why they get to have all the fun? Why is it that their lives seem to be so blessed with the riches of this life? Why is it that those who have been disobedient to God, who have lived carefree and undisciplined lives, seem to have so much wealth and health and wonderful friendships? Why is it that they have been blessed with comfortable lives? And it might be that you feel like you have done everything right for your whole life and... Where has it gotten you? If you feel this way, you're not alone. Asaph expresses the same feeling in Psalm 73. He states, For I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. Behold, these are the wicked always at ease. They increase in riches. And he goes on to say, All, I, all in vain, all in vain have I kept my heart clean and wash my hands in innocence. For all the day long I have been stricken and rebuked every morning when my soul was embittered, when I was pricked in heart, I was brutish and arrogant, I was like a beast toward you. These feelings can lead us to be a beast toward the Lord. So even as you are so proud of how your life hasn't been marred by obvious sin, your obedience to God might feel like a burden and has, that has been placed on you and has, has worked to oppress you. And imagine if God then showed mercy to that outwardly and openly sinful person, offering the same salvation that you received, yet without the years of faithful obedience. This is the rub for the older brother, and it might be the rub for Jonah. And dearly beloved, if this is you, then what you are experiencing is an inner resentment and bitterness toward God. Your anger and envy are revealing your own bondage to sin. You are 
You might not be wandering far away like the prodigal, but you are in your own state of lostness. It's the lostness of the elder brother who lacked gratitude for all the gifts that he had been given, who failed to recognize the benefits that he had received by being in close proximity to the father. He was so focused on being obedient in what he didn't have that he missed the joy of salvation. And he didn't even delight in being obedient. He couldn't cry out with the psalmist of Psalm 119, Lord, oh, how I love your law. I find my delight in your commandments, which I love. Your testimonies are my heritage forever, for they are the joy of my heart. There was outward obedience without inward love. This is Jonah's problem. And it might be your problem if you lack gratitude and joy in your faith, but are filled with resentment. God wants his children to recognize all that he has done for them and to have a glad and happy heart. He wants joyful obedience, not miserable duty. But then there's this final piercing question to Jonah. You pity the plant for which you did not labor, nor did you make it to grow, which came into being in a night and perished in a night. And should I not pity Nineveh? that great city in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from their left and also much cattle. In other words, Jonah, don't you see that you care more about this silly plant than you do for all of these people? And if you don't care for the people, maybe at least you would care for the cattle, which would be destroyed if judgment fell on Nineveh like it had on Sodom and Gomorrah. You see, God was carefully bringing Jonah along from arguing from the lesser to the greater. If we are concerned about a plant, a pet, livestock, then how much more should we be concerned with the thousands upon thousands, the millions upon millions of perishing souls who haven't heard the word of God and responded in faith? God wants Jonah to move from his petty little concerns to care about what God cares about, sinful humanity trapped in their own ignorance and corruption. And we on this side of the cross should understand better than anyone that it is to the most wicked and evil that God sends his son who hangs on a cross and prays, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. God wants us to see here his glory in being merciful to a lost world. And he wants us to participate in this redemptive work and to rejoice over his grace. So this is the way God deals with his people, sovereignly appointing circumstances meant to provide a living parable, patiently prodding with these questions. God wasn't about to leave Jonah sitting in his anger and bitterness. Christian, do you see yourselves here? We can live lives filled with resentment and bitterness and anger. And, and how many times God might well have given up on us. But he doesn't. He is a loving father who comes out to meet us and continue, continues to patiently and graciously prod us. As Richard Phillip puts it so well, an amazing condescension. 
more patient than the most loving mother of toddlers or the most enduring father of teenage children. God bears with our weakness and sin and never gives up on our salvation. He sees the end from the beginning and he knows the glory he will win for himself through his patiently persevering grace. The story ends just as the parable of the prodigal son ends. It ends with words from the father to a bitter and resentful son. They are words inviting the son to come out of bitterness and into the joy of salvation. There's no resolution to the parable and there's no resolution here because both are inviting us to see ourselves in the narrative and to write our own ending. So dearly beloved, if you are the elder brother, if you are Jonah, how, how will it end? Do you do well to be angry? Let us pray together. Heavenly Father, we give you thanks and praise for your patient endurance with us, for your loving kindness, for your graciousness. Lord, even while we were yet sinners, you sent your son to die for us. Lord, help us to see our own sin. Help us to understand the greatness of the salvation which has been offered to us. Lord, help us to see the need for that for others. Lord, and plant within us a deep desire and gratitude for your mercy toward us to, to go and to share your word with others that they too might come and know the joy of salvation. Lord, bring us into gratitude. Bring us out of resentment and hatred and anger. And may it all be to your glory, for we pray this in the mighty name of Jesus. Amen. In response to the gospel, let us now stand and affirm what we believe, saying together the Apostles' Creed. <clears throat> Christian, in whom do you believe? I believe in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Ghost, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead, and buried. He descended into hell. The third, he rose again from the dead. He ascended into heaven and sitteth at the right hand of God, the Father Almighty. From thence you shall come, judge. <clears throat> I believe in the Holy Ghost, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen.